Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Milan Jarosh. Milan, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paul. Nice to be here. Uh, Milan, maybe you could take us back a little bit in time, go back to where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about your, your childhood. All right. So um, if you kind of look at my life, I would sort of split it up into two sort of uh, sections. The first one was um, when, obviously, I grew up in the western uh, part of uh, Germany, but I uh, moved out from home when I was about nine uh, because I actually wanted to uh, pursue a career, which I did, and uh, moved uh, to Hamburg, which is in the north of Germany, because I wanted to become a ballet dancer. And so I moved into boarding school and uh, went through that whole uh, six, seven, eight years of uh, intense uh, training and um, actually then yeah, joined the Hamburg Ballet uh, and uh, yeah, was a ballet dancer. But then obviously, um, as you might know, I uh, got injured relatively quickly after being a professional ballet dancer. So after about two years, I had a, uh, an accident uh, on stage. So uh, and then, uh, yeah, had a couple of years of uh, operations and rehab and operations and rehab until I had to finally decide to uh, to give that career up. And then I had to, in the beginning of 20 years old, had to find a new career from scratch and uh, obviously had no idea what I was trying to be or was trying to become. And um, yeah, then I had a quite uh, significant uh, and for me, for my personal view, uh, impactful experience, because obviously when I had to uh, stop my career as a dancer in Germany, the way it goes is you have to go to like a careers counseling at the job center. Um, so I went there and they asked me what I wanted to what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And uh, I said I wanted to be in management and I wanted to do sales and I had all these uh, dre- these dreams, and uh, the only thing they said was, "Yeah, but you haven't done, you haven't learned anything. What? How do you expect to do anything in your life if you haven't done anything?" Seeing obviously as a professional ballet dancer isn't really going to do much for you as a career in business. So from from that point on, I had sort of had this drive to uh, to 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 learn, to study, and to advance. And uh, yeah, so that's that's then when my second career started so that's a little bit like childhood and uh already some of the things that might uh be interesting later and also obviously things that shaped my my life later on in business okay before we get to your second career we need to back up a little bit because (laughs) i've never had a professional ballet dancer on the podcast ever i may never have again so and i'm and i'm fascinated as well because my niece my sister's daughter went through years and years and years uh, training to become a ballet dancer. So at a distance, I'm familiar with how brutal the regime is and how difficult the training is and how mm. focused and determined you have to be in order to succeed in that game. So go back a little bit further. You said nine years of age. Mm-hmm. How did you know at nine years of age this was your career? What, what was happening in your life? What did you see? What did you notice that you said, 
that's for me. I mean, to be honest, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, you don't really exactly know what you want to do. I knew that I wanted to be do something active. I did a load of different sports. I did competitive swimming and tennis and all those uh, all those things. And uh, my uh, then ballet teacher said I was really talented. And if I wanted to pursue this as a career, then I would have to move out from home and move into a big city. Obviously, we came from a smaller town. And uh, so that was the, the draw. That was what got me excited. And uh, so then, yeah, I, uh, when I got into the, the Hamburg Ballet School, uh, that's obviously, you, 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 like you said, it's, it's, it's a completely different world. It's not like normal kids, let's say it like that, because obviously everybody has this dream. And first of all, there's a certain standard. So, you know, things like you get weight every week and if you're, have too much if you're too 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 heavy then you get kicked out so every six months uh, you get uh, you have the exams and then you would uh, half the class would get uh, would get dropped and would have to leave so you knew it was a competitive sort of environment and even though you might only at 10 11 12 years old you might only have two three hours of, of ballet training a day we spent our evenings not sitting and talking we spent our evenings practicing doing things learning and trying to to get better and um, that was sort of the environment so it's a little bit different because you're not the odd one out if you do extra things you would be the odd one out if you didn't so therefore the the life is different you kind of grow into this whole atmosphere of uh, competitiveness and it's quite much like other competitive or uh, sports because it's obviously it's art and it's not like you know if you run the fastest you win but it's still in that sort of realm so it has the same idea behind it that you're trying to you know especially mm. as a as a man um you do a load of they call it patadeurs for example which is when you dance with a woman you have to lift them and carry them and do tricks and so it's very much you can you can get this competitive sort of uh, thing, which is always something that I liked to do, and uh, yeah, I thought it was it was exciting. You were, you know, twenty four seven, obviously in boarding school. Everybody did the same thing. It was a boarding school just for the ballet, and uh, so everybody did the same, had the same goal, and tried to achieve the same the same things. Even though, if I look back on it, when when I started, um, we had obviously kids that were in my sort of year, but there was also uh, older kids. And But from the year that I started, that finished, there was only three of us that actually ended up, that completed the whole, the whole school. And then later on, I was the only one out of my year that came that actually got a job at the end of it. So it's not like you do the you you learn it and then everybody gets a job it's it's also hard isn't it and it's not yeah. just for women obviously you know in in normal perception everybody thinks that you know it's hard for women and it's it's easy for for men to to get a job but if, to give you an example when i went to to munich to to get a job which i did later on um there were two they had two spaces for women as a as a from a as a from a contract point of view and two spaces for men so two women two men and i think there were like 480 women that wanted to audition for the two places and there were like 350 360 men so there were less but it's not easy 
from 200 mm. from from 350 or 450 it doesn't really make much difference to uh, the chances are slim either way mm. to uh, to get a job and it's what makes you successful in ballet different for men and women i mean for for men it's actually it's it's not much different to 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 be successful as a man or a woman it's just the mm. the men need, tend to need to be more athletic than the women because obviously as a woman you have to do obviously you're on point and it, it sort of there's a few little different requirements even though mm. they're actually everybody nowadays if you look at real like the, the ballet companies like the royal ballet in in in, in london or the paris opera or those they're all athletic it's all the everybody's looks yeah. sort of the part and everybody know, knows exactly what it takes and what it needs even though yeah. At the end of the day, it's the the goal isn't just to get a job, because you always you don't study, you don't uh, you know go to boarding school and live by yourself uh, just to be in the core and just to be at the back and have small parts. You obviously want to become a soloist or a principal. So it it never ends. The the mm. the the pursuit yeah. continues until at I don't know thirty thirty. To 33, you're too old, and then you have to quit. So even though, even like my wife, she uh, was also a ballet dancer. She was uh, she danced with me in, in in Hamburg, and later on in Düsseldorf in in the Western uh, Germany. She was a soloist. So at the end of the day, by the time you're 30, 33, 34, 35, that's the end of the career. Either way, even if you stay fit and healthy and you don't have any accidents by then, that's sort of the end of the the end of the road so that's really interesting because you're facing a certain end in your career regardless and it's just a, it's a case of how long and how how far you get in that period of time yeah and, and what i'm interested before we get on to second life um what i'm also interested in you mentioned that it was the norm for people to do extracurricular activities practice <laughs> rehearsal etc yeah. rather than the exception what I'm curious about is when they when they take in pupils at nine years of age, mm -hmm. um, are they testing for attitude for that competitive streak, or is that something the process brings out in you? Yes, they don't. They they pretty much at that age they pretty much only look at physicality as, as uh, the body capabilities. How stretched are you? Uh, can you do certain things obviously there's certain there's some things that you can't really learn a lot like coordination if you aren't coordinated and then it's you're never gonna it's never gonna work because later on as a professional dancer sometimes you've got a day two three days to put on a whole ballet and if it takes you too long to to get the steps right then you're out either way so that's something that they look for so it's mostly mm. body physicality and coordination that's what they look at until mm you're later on like 14 15 16 then obviously it's it's a little bit different but at the young age that's pretty much also all you do it's people also don't really know and that's what's what's funny because my wife and i we also have like a, a musical school on the side that we run that we and uh, there's always these sort of parents that think oh my my kid should do ballet because obviously it's it's it looks nice and if you look at a ballet you think it's all quite you know pretty and it's it's nice 
at the end of the day, all you do at 10, 11, 12 is stand at the bar and just try and point your feet and uh, learn the technique of it. It's it's boring. The, the beginning, the first couple of years isn't what you would see in mm. on the stage because you don't do any of that until you're 13, 14. Most of the time you spend it. And later on, even if you're a professional ballet dancer, you do class uh, like a ballet class in the mornings before you start with rehearsals. That ballet class is an hour and a half to two hours long and you spend a good hour of it standing at the bar, just moving your feet. So it's it's there's a lot of technique involved. It's not just dance. And mm. that's sort of what people don't understand is that it's it, it, it has to look right in order mm. for it to be correct and in order to be able to do it also in the long term without getting injured. It's, it's the same, but it's the same in, in, in other sports. If you do, if you go to the gym and you don't do the movements right after a couple of years your shoulders are broken and uh, so it's the same kind of thing especially for for men when you have to you know lift women and do all these things it has to you have to know exactly how to do it otherwise it's not gonna you're not gonna get mm. far and it's not gonna last yeah. long before you get injured take me then to the moment where you're injured and you realize that this is a career-ending injury what was that like for you emotionally, mentally? I mean, the, the, my life was a little bit different in other, than other people because obviously my um, parents got divorced when I was about 14, 15, and a year later my, my father died. So I didn't have sort of support from my parents. And I was quite realistic from a young age. I, I just to, before I start before before I get into this, uh, when when I had to stop, I remember when I had to move out of boarding school, I was 15. And I had to move out of boarding school, because at some point, obviously, they need the place for new younger children. So I, by the time I was 15, 16, I had to live in my own apartment by myself, do my own washing and cleaning and cooking. And, um, and I remember that I had six weeks of summer holidays, summer vacations. And I knew if I didn't work 10, 11, 12 hours in those six weeks, I would sit in an empty apartment and have no bed or no fridge or anything. So I always knew that nobody else would help me and I would have to sort myself out. So that was obviously the experience I had. I always in every holidays, every time that I had off, I worked in supermarkets. I worked in I, I cleaned, you know, industrial kitchens and pay pretty much anything that would bring money. And so when I got injured, obviously, in, as a ballet dancer, you have a set contract. So I got paid still, even though I wasn't working. See, I had operations and I tried to, tried to get back. And obviously, I was quite, uh, quite talented and I've done good things in the in the short career that I had. So they they really hoped that I would be able to get back to it. But you kind of know your body by that uh, by that age. So when you're 18, 19, 20, you've already had so much experience and you know what feels right and what feels wrong. And I already kind of knew straight away that that wasn't it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna go away. So I I really went. The, I I remember I spent weeks going to like bookshops and trying to see where I was drawn to. And that's when I kind of thought I liked the whole business uh, thing. 
And I got into that. And the funny thing was, it was like a gradual process because obviously the, the, the ballet world is quite international. So I was, we were, I was living in Germany and in the company, there was, I don't know, 70, 75 dancers in the company. And you maybe had five, six that were German and the rest was from all over the world. And none of those people that came from different countries really knew what was, what it needed in Germany. Like they always had questions when it came to renting an apartment or what do I need to do here and what do I need to do there? And, and then I kind of thought oh, maybe I can use that. And then I kind of got by accident, I got into insurance. And so I learned a little bit of, you know, what they needed for their health insurance and all that. And I ended up then working with an insurance company um, and basically going around all of Germany, all the, all the different companies of the, and I was ended up helping ballet dancers with all the things that they needed uh, in order to uh, set their set their contracts upright and maybe you know look after the seeing as health insurance and what do I need I need a house insurance I need a liability and all that type of stuff so that's what I how I kind of gradually switched from this dancing thing into into business even though obviously it took me a while to really study and learn and find new things because obviously that's not something that I wanted to do for the to, for the rest of my life but it was a good way getting into something because it was a, like a natural kind of process mm. from dancing staying in that world and I knew exactly what they needed and what they liked and what they what they were looking for but mm. still being able to make money from it yeah and and that would have been quite unique to have somebody in the in insurance industry with your background, with your knowledge and insight to the domain, if you like, that you're you're providing services for, yeah. um, which which is interesting. I, I here's what I've taken is that so you have this injury and very quickly you come to the realization that this is different. You know your body well. Did you really go from that moment to? Okay, let's go out and research what I can do. What or was there a period of? You're gonna, you know, it'd be natural if you felt sorry for yourself <laughs> if you were a little bit depressed. I'm just curious about that. What's the transition like? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I never really do that sort of self pity type thing. I was always looking. I always look forward and also later on you know we we had a, a little bit of a discussion before because obviously later on I got uh, I, you know I had uh, cancer which we might get into later mm. and I never look at what is bad that's sort of I can't I, I know that it's not going to help me so ob during the time that I was uh, still a dancer because I had a long time isn't it I, I was written off injured and sick for about a year where I had operations and you ke I kept doing um, like a uh, physio and you had like three, four hours a day trying to get the body back into shape. But that's not day filling. It's not, you know, I had usually I had the, the physio started at eight and by the time it was 11, 30, 12 o'clock lunchtime, I was done. So what mm. else am I supposed to do? I can't sit at, at home and feel sorry for myself, especially seeing as my uh, the whole world, everybody that I knew was working. And yeah. so... But some people do, Mila, this is it. That's what I'm always fascinated in. 
the way people go in different directions. Some people, and, and you could perfectly understand why some people would go through a period of feeling sorry for themselves, that their whole world has fallen apart. And, and what I'm really curious about is your attitude about, okay, well, we need to do something, let's look forward. My wife is exactly the same, and she also went to boarding school at a very young age. And I'm wondering, does that process, is that, does that shape you in terms of you're on your own two feet. Okay, you're you're mm-hmm. in an environment, but essentially you you have to live by your wits and you have to look forward. I, I, and I'm curious. I just what what are your thoughts on that? As that environment might shape that that resilience that you had. I don't know. I think it's it's not so much the the boarding school. I think it's more the realization when I was up until I was about fourteen, fifteen. When obviously when my my father died. Um, I might have been different. It was sort of that. I, it was sort of the realization that nobody's going to pick me up if I can't. So as, as soon as that happened, I just, it, it, I realized that that's not going to do anything for me in life. And mm. I, I, I always found it fascinating because it was funny. A couple of years ago, we had obviously in the, the Hamburg Ballet is quite a big company and it's quite famous. And we did a lot of touring and I saw the whole world. And, and they always do like a reunion and every couple of years, every five or 10 years. And I always found it fascinating so that you had dancers that were successful, some were than others. But a lot of them at the end of their careers, they sort of went back home and lived with their parents and it was like they were children again and I could never understand how at 30, 35 you would be willing to just sort of sit back and wait for something to happen I just it's 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 strange in a sense that like Mm. you say like everybody obviously reacts different to different situations but I always found that in, in German, there's a saying, it's called, means you make your own luck. You are responsible for what happens in your life. And I just, uh, I don't see the point in feeling sorry because it's not going to, nothing's going to change from it. Mm. And so that's also obviously later when, when obviously when I had uh, cancer, it's, it's a little bit different because when you have a family and you have, you know, I have a, a daughter. Mm. It's it's obviously you're not responsible just for yourself, but for others. But by at that age, at beginning of twenty, you're really just responsible for yourself. There's nobody else that you really have to worry about, except for making something happen for yourself. And I always found it's not about like being the most successful or taking over the world, but you have to make yourself happy. It seems such a it seems such a waste to not live your life and get do what you can do because it can it could end quickly like obviously with my father he was i don't know 40 40 45 something like that so you know things can end and it just seems strange to not want to live life as you can as best as you can so you're you're selling insurance products essentially yeah, to I, I used to yes. That's how that's how I yes. start, how I started. Yeah. Yes, and I want to. What age were you when you were when you were selling insurance products? Roughly mid twenties. Yeah, like twenty two, twenty three, twenty four. Yeah. That was sort of the age. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so talk to me then where you went from there career wise. Yeah, so like I said, I had this this. Uh, <laughs> 
experience at that job center where they said, you know, you, you might as well, you're selling insurance a bit and you used to be a ballet dancer, but how can you expect to do anything if you haven't learned anything? So mm. that's when I started or I decided that I was going to catch up because every obviously children that had normal lives and didn't have a career as a ballet dancer or as, as in sports, they had time to do their A-levels like and 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 went go to university and do all that kind of uh, all those things and by the time they were 24 25 they were either done or getting towards being done and i was only just at the beginning so during the time when everybody that i knew was working until 10 11 o'clock at night and having performances and working on christmas and on easter so i had a lot of time to study so while i was working insurance i studied so I had a full-time job. I did th two or sometimes three different uh, separate uh, study courses at the same time. So I went to uni and I did in Germany, you can do uh, what they call an apprenticeship. So you go to school a couple of days a, a week and you work. Uh, so I used, I, I was my own uh, boss. Obviously I had like an insurance agency. So I worked uh, full-time because I had to make money. I couldn't do it how other kids did it at my age uh, and rely on family. So I worked and I studied and I got my uh, my bachelor's degree and then I get my uh, MBA I did in, in Surrey in England. And so by the time I was then 26, 27, I had caught up. I had uh, a bachelor's and master's. I had uh, the the degrees that you get in Germany from for the insurance uh, industry. I had done pretty much everything you could learn because I never wanted to have this situation again where I went to a job center and they said, how can you expect to do something if you haven't learned it? So I learned everything that I could and got every degree possible. And by now I still do, even though I'm, you know, mid forties and I still learn and try and find new ways to, to, uh, to advance and to, so yeah, it's, it's just something that's, fascinates me and I always find that the more you know the easier it is also to to get on with people especially younger people and people that have the sort the same attitude and it's mm. to this day it's it's always funny when I get uh, applications I get job applications from from people and I always find it's it's just funny because when they say oh I've studied for three years or four years and I don't know how it is in, 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 in England, but in Germany, obviously the bachelor's degrees, everything's sort of regulated now, isn't it? So there's for a bachelor's degree, you get credit points. So you need 180 credit points to get a bachelor's degree. And usually you take three years. So there's six semesters. So three years of studying for the 180 points, which means that you get 60 a year, 30 per semester. And I always think it's funny when they when I get applications and I say, all right, okay, so how long have you studied? Two years. How many points do you have? And they're like 15, 20. So I'm saying you haven't actually done anything. If you've spent two years at uni and you've gotten 20, got 20 credit points, then you are lazy. And it's always funny that people don't really want to hear that because they always think they're hard done by and everybody has a hard life. But I had these problems. I had these problems. I said, yeah. I had problems myself, but that's not, that's not an excuse to sit back and do nothing. And it's, it's, it, it's always funny because it took me a long time to sort of dial down a bit. 
because of that. And I had, when I was younger, especially, uh, I had some problems because people didn't like the fact that I was so sort of forceful and didn't let anything like didn't let it slide from people, which was hard, obviously, when you go into into management and you're responsible for other people, because not everybody is like that. And that's also fine. And I had to understand that that it's not everybody has to want to do that. It's also fine. And it's also enough if you just want to work and you want to do a good job, but you don't want to exceed and do 120 percent. Yeah. So that's something that I only learned by age. Yeah, let's talk about that. I'm I'm always interested in people's transition to leadership because Mm -hmm. it does require a different perspective because you're trying to now get the best out of other people and what worked for you, your blueprint is not necessarily going to work for others. Um, Was there a a light bulb moment for you or was it a gradual thing and, and... yeah, how how did you adapt yourself to to that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's to me if I look back at it, it's more of a growing up and getting older thing, because my attitude towards myself hasn't really changed. I just sort of learned to not be so adamant that everybody has to be the same. It used to be because obviously like in the in the like I said, we already discussed it in the in the ballet world, it, everybody was like that. If you weren't willing to put in that amount of effort, you weren't going to get anywhere. So there wasn't really anybody there by the end that wasn't working hard. And that's something that I just sort of I realized that, you, you know, like you say, you you the 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 bait has to be good for the fish the fish has to like the bait not me it doesn't matter if i like something it it has to be what the other uh, what 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 the the Mm. other people also need so therefore that's something that's not really it's not a light bulb moment it's not one particular thing that happened i just realized that as much as I was really good always in, because I used to sell insurance, obviously, when I was I was younger, and I was always really successful because I could really quickly understand and feel what people needed to hear and what they wanted to hear and what I needed to explain in order to get my point across and them to 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 get what what was the what the point of it was, and. I sort of realized that that's exactly the same thing. It's like trying to find the, the 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 win-win in every conversation. And it's not just about sales. It's the same in management and it's the same in leadership. And it's the same when you talk to, uh, to, to, to my, my team and everybody's different. But my job is not to make them little me's. My job is to get them better in the way that they want to get better and in where they want to be. And that's, I think, why over the recent time, the last couple of years, I've gotten much more successful as a manager than I used to be in the beginning. So that's, it's a a process, really. Yeah. How did having a daughter uh, impact or influence your thinking on life? I just, 
it, it's, it's funny in the sense that when you become a parent, from my experience, you always think that you can shape their lives. But what I learned, especially from my daughter, who's really headstrong and a really strong personality and doesn't take anything from anybody. It's Where did like, she get that from? I wonder. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I sort of realized the, the influence that I actually have or that we as parents have is really, really slim. There is not, you can, you can sort of give boundaries and you can say, look, these are the, 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 the borders on which, but the, everybody has to do what they have to do. And I realized letting go actually made it a lot easier. And I get, we, we have much more uh, good times. We have more fun and we can do more things together when it's not, my way or or there is just my way it doesn't work and that's sort of something that also i yeah probably also helped in in in, in leadership as well because it's exactly the same thing isn't it everybody has their their things that they want and the, the problem is also that as long as you keep trying to make to, to, to change people let it's my daughter or if it's at work with my my team it's uh yeah the more you're trying to change them the more pressure the more uh, they're gonna go against it and it's not gonna it's not gonna make it better the atmosphere doesn't it doesn't help mm. and i realized that if you let people do what they need to do and let them experience their own things it's actually a lot more successful than trying to make it how i want it and yeah yeah Agreed. I've been a parent for 30 years now and there's only two things I've taken from it as a parent. One is your job is to make them confident, give yeah. them confidence in themselves. Job number one. Job number mm -hmm. two, make sure they have good friends. Yeah. And three, get out of the way. That's <laughs> it. If, you, if they have good friends and they're confident, job is done. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, you're there, as but, you say, guardrails and support and nurturing and all of that. Yeah. But... Uh, other than that, you're right. You're very shockingly little influence. And the more you try to press that, the worse it gets. Yeah, sure. Um, talk to me about. I want to talk to you about your, your cancer. Mm -hmm. um, bring me back to what you noticed that brought you to the doctor and then mm -hmm. just walk me through that process, please. Yeah. I mean, again, I think everything in life happens sort of for a reason, because it wasn't I, I didn't actually have anything. There was no there was no reason to go to the doctor. I just remember my wife used to she got from her health insurance. She got like a, a letter in the post and it said, oh, do a, a, a 35 year checkup. So when you're 35, just go and do uh, have uh, have checks. And I was just sort of in between uh, jobs. I was um, starting a new uh, job and I had still a week and a half or something left. Uh, so I had a bit of free time and I thought, you know, I might as well have a checkup too. And uh, then that's where they found they, oh, there was there was a lump. Uh, and uh, they're like, oh, maybe we should have that uh, checked out. And it was just through coincidence that they'd actually found it that quick. Mm. And again, if you know, I could have waited and it could have gotten it could have uh, been a lot worse, but it wasn't because it just uh, life just sort of uh, sort of happens on the uh, on the other hand. Um, obviously it's never straightforward. It's not like this is what's going to happen. And, uh, so everything sort of 
happens either either way if you're ready for it or not and if you want it or not things are gonna uh, things are gonna happen anyway so the way it, it worked for me was that uh, they said first well, it doesn't look too bad uh, let's uh, operate it and so they uh, I had a, an operation it took some part of the uh, tumor out and they closed uh, they closed it up and they said uh, all right okay we're gonna we we send samples in uh, from the rest of the organ and um so we'll see uh, what happens. And three, four days later, we were just uh, going um, to visit family in England. I got a call and they said, no, there's cancer on the other side, on the other bit as well. You have to come back straight away and we're going to have to operate uh, again. So it was the, the obviously it's, it's then my daughter was, I think, maybe five, six years old at that at, at the time. So she she obviously understood some things, but it wasn't really clear to her what it meant she obviously saw me when we to when i got went to the hospital and when uh, you know uh, when i went in but it was more it for me in the head what happens if that was my my the first time where i really really felt that i needed to sort i, I needed to be there for my family because before like i said you were only responsible for yourself and no matter what happened that was that was the only thing you had to deal with and now i had obviously a wife and a child and it wasn't just about being all right myself i also had to make sure that they were all right because it's not just me that has it it's also something that impacts the rest of uh, of the family and i realized also later through through talking with with my wife is everybody obviously deals with it differently my the, the way i always deal with certain things especially like that uh, cancer is i just look forward i don't do what if and what would happen and let's talk about it because like i said I, in my opinion that doesn't really achieve anything and that was difficult because for my wife she's, she's a lot different she, everything that happens you have to discuss it and you talk about it and the more and and sort of that is what she would have needed but it's exactly not what i wanted i just wanted mm. to get on with it and do what i need to do it was never i would always do whatever it takes but i don't need to discuss every process of it through and through in order to process this i i would rather i know what what's what could be but i don't need to, to talk about it so everybody obviously has different things and um again this whole thing was a long and and, and at obviously after i had my second operation you have to i had this um therapy and because it was in my throat um i lost my voice for about six months so obviously i was a sales manager so i was a, a regional manager in in sales and as you can imagine if you can't talk uh, it's quite difficult to do your job if uh, talking is what you do for a living. And um, I, um, that by my, um, I don't know what they called in in England, uh, in German they called the Stimmbänder. So the, the the what makes the noise didn't. It was sort of, uh, yeah, it was um, it wasn't the the vibration wasn't happening in my throat. Yeah. So therefore, is to excite, the, isn't it? Yeah, the the vocal cords, yeah. isn't it? I think yes, there, there's it's it. vibration, yeah, yeah. and the tone comes yeah. out through the vibration, and that was just not happening. So mm. 
you can't like you try and talk and nothing uh, nothing comes out so that was to me a uh, being a bit like being back as a ballet dancer injured mm. because i had those those six months when i couldn't talk so first of all i had this whole you know cancer and what's going to happen and is it getting better and are you getting healthy on the other hand i knew i was only i don't know 35 36 37 and uh, it's like i can't sit back and say all right okay that'll that'll be it i needed to i knew i had another 30 years of work ahead of me so i then already had to find new thing already in my head in that time i already then started studying again for something in case i couldn't do my job anymore so that was my way of dealing with it is not sort of dwelling on what can happen and all that so my initial response and reaction again is then all right okay if that's not gonna if that's not gonna work anymore what else can i do so that's mm. the what it reminds me of your attitude as well I, I, you probably have you ever watched ted lasso on apple tv yeah i did actually yeah okay all right yeah yeah we did so, you just finished it a couple of weeks ago yeah. oh very good very good and ted has a wonderful expression that says be a goldfish which is that, you know, if something happens, just get over it. You've got a six-second memory about it. Now move on to the next thing. Yes, yes. It, it, it feels a little bit like that. I know it's, that's obviously a, an oversimplification of it, but it, it's an interesting. What I'm also curious about is, because you, you mentioned your wife has a need to talk things out, to process it by talking it out. Mm -hmm. You have a different uh, perspective on that, a different need Indeed. on that. Yeah. How do you navigate that? Because this is not something that's over in a day or two. You've got several, several months to go. And so how do you navigate so you both get what you need? I don't know. It's, I think it's quite, it's quite difficult. Obviously, if you have really different ways of, of dealing with it, um, it's, it's really about compromise. And so I tried, obviously, to talk some but not to the extent that uh, uh that my wife would have actually needed it to to process and mm. i always found that compromise is always sort of like the worst uh solution that's sort of my experience because nobody actually gets out of it it's the same in business as well and and in uh, in my work because compromise always implies that nobody gets what they want Mm. And I, the way I sort of try to do it is to, to, to either to, to spend a time where you really talk a lot, so to give her what she needs, but then sort of put an end, put a stop to it, and then do it how I need it, rather than mm. always constantly try and do a bit of both was to sort of, it, it took me a while in the beginning, we really didn't talk. But then we had a point when I said, all right, okay, I'm, I'm ready now. We can talk about it. And then we really spent a lot of time discussing how she felt and what we needed and what, what it was important for her. And I think that was, in a sense, better than sort of talking half-heartedly a little bit. So this whole compromise situation we didn't do. And I, I feel, from my perspective, that that was the better solution to give me time in the beginning to deal with it how I needed to deal with it and then give her the opportunity to talk it out and talk about what 
she needed to or how how my wife needed to process it so so losing your voice for six months just between you and me that nobody else is listening mm-hmm. that was your strategy right all along <laughs> good one right good one yeah. i like it i like yeah. your thinking i like your thinking <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really odd. I mean, if you've ever experienced something like that, it's, it's crazy that I woke up in the morning and I could talk and then it was a little bit like you had a dry throat and then mm. all of a sudden no tone came out of my voice. Mm. It's like from within like half an hour, you can't talk. And then it took like weeks where I thought, I don't know, I went to the doctors and I went to speech therapy and they're like, you know, that's it's. They, they knew what, what kind of what happened and or what the problem is, but they said, we don't know if that's ever going to come back or not. Mm. So it's, it's very, yeah, it's, it's, did that odd. scare you? That, that, that actually did scare me because I always knew that talking was always what I could do. Mm. I, that was my, that something that I could always rely on was getting away with things through talking. And I, I was that really scared me that if I would have 30, 40 years of life when I couldn't, if I, if you can't really communicate, because it's also difficult. It's, 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 you know, for the other person, like I, I remember when I was 27, 28 and I worked for an insurance company, they had somebody that used to probably had uh, cancer from, from smoking or something. And he had like a, a machine that sort of spoke a little mm. bit and I remember that I had I had a meeting with him and it it was it was challenging. Like after an hour, I was I was done. It, this was hard, and I thought, oh, man, if I have to do this job or something related to talking, and be it be that difficult for the other people, I would really have to find something different that I could do. And I always liked talking, so that was that was even harder for me in a sense than giving up dancing because with the dancing, I knew. I was all right, 21, 22, I real, I knew it was 10 years and then the career would have been over anyway. So I already knew as a dancer that I needed to get something else. But by that time, by the time I was 35, 36 and cancer happened and then I lost my voice, I realized that that's where I wanted to be. And I was already on the right track. And that was what was hard is that I realized or I thought if that's not going to work, then I sort of lose my my USP, my, the thing that I'm best at. And that was what was difficult. You were 35, 36. How long ago was that? Uh, I mean, I'm 42 now. So yeah, it was about six, seven years ago that I had. Okay. And your daughter's so 12, 13 now. She's, she's going to be 12. Yeah. Yeah. 12. Okay. What were your, I'm I'm curious to know if that, how that experience shaped your thinking on, on both professionally and also as a parent? To me, the main takeaway that, or the decision that I made with this cancer thing is I realized I, I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not like, you know, I didn't smoke. I didn't do, I live healthily and I try and eat well and do exercise and all that. So it was something that I had no control over. And, but I realized that things can be over pretty quickly. And my decision I made was that I never want to have even a day where I would look at it at the end of the day and think, oh, that was a waste of time. So that was really something that I felt or I still feel really strongly about. 
that life you have to live it either way the, to the best of your ability and that's why I try I'm, I'm a lot more easygoing in the sense that I know that everybody has a different idea of what life should be and it's the same as a parent or as a husband or at work when when I'm responsible for for a team of uh, of, of highly experienced and and well educated people obviously I'm I'm in, in, in my company I'm the head of uh, sales and I'm in charge of innovation transformation and my sales managers they're all highly qualified people then there's, there's hardly any junior uh, staff in in my in my team so the, the like I said before, the problem is trying to get them to do, to to be little Milans, to be to be little me's. That's the what always uh, what I always try to do. And I I found that if you just let people do, they're they're much better. They have more success. They're happier. And that's the same thing. It's it's a challenge, obviously, with my daughter, and because we try and do the best, my wife and I, we try and, you know, give her the best uh, life that she can have. On the other hand, I always find if you let go, it's just, it's just much easier. And at, it's, as far as it goes at the moment, I think she's she's doing all right. She's happy at school. She's always, and which I find really good is that, she always helps people so if she sees somebody being bullied or somebody she steps in which is for for a, 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 um, for a girl especially if there's boys that are you know bullying mm. another girl she steps in and i think that's we've done we've done well mm. yeah. what are you doing when you're at your happiest <laughs> i I found that uh, um, sort of cutting off every now and again, sort of letting go. I used to always feel the need to do something constantly. You know, it was either studying or training or working out or doing something that I needed to, to, to do. And I feel now, especially that if I realize life's good and we're, we're all right, I, I enjoy which I've never done in my life in the first 40 years of my life to just sort of do nothing and sort of let let your mind wander. That was something that I could never could never do. And I'm starting to, to learn it. And that sort of I realized is also important in life. And also another thing is, I don't know how it is with with you, but to me, my goal was always or oh, I was always trying to get to the next step. I know I was never satisfied. So I got a new job and I had more responsibilities. And I always already after six months, eight months, 10 months, a year, I was, I needed the next thing. I was bored. I needed to sort of, uh, to advance. And what I realize now is it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you don't have to rule the world in order to, to be happy. Even if you would, I don't think that would necessarily fulfill me even more more than it does now and that's something that took time to to sort of find out that life can be interesting and fun even if you just let go a little bit and you don't have to be control uh all the time 
and uh, yeah, that's that's something that it's only recently that I sort of started to to enjoy just letting go. What are you most proud of? I'm uh, there's a, there's a there's a few things actually that I'm proud of. First of all, is when I was younger, um, I'm I'm. The, the first one in my in my family that's gone to university, for example. So we have uh, we were sort of like a working class uh, background and it was always sort of the dream to 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 for me to to study and to do uh, stuff. And I'm proud now that I've actually relatively easily managed to do everything that I set out to do, which is nice because now I can learn things not because I need to achieve something just because it's it's interests me and it's fun and the second thing is like I said I uh, I had a bit of a problematic childhood in the sense that there was obviously when I moved to, to uh, boarding school there was not really much of a structure um, and I didn't really have a family life and my my parents obviously they didn't really get on and my father died relatively early so we've never had like a family life and I it, it, it really makes me happy now especially seeing my daughters getting older but she still comes and when we're just the three of us are together and sort of we realize that we are happy that there's good things and we're we're satisfied with what we have and where we've been where we are i think that's important to be happy with what you have and not always i mean it's important to to try and find new things and to develop and it's 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 all very well but it's not the most important thing it's also just to be happy with what you've achieved and to enjoy that and those sort of times now when we sit together and we're just yeah we're just a, a family and mm. life is is good after all these challenges and all with all the problems and everything that's going on in the world it's still important to make sure that you realize actually yeah we're we're doing all right and we're mm. we're happy mm. i'm curious to know if you don't mind me asking mm. uh, i was 20 when my father died so a little bit older and I didn't deal with it at the time, and I know it affected me in ways when I was older, and certainly as a parent. I'm curious to know how how it how it impacted you. If that's something you're comfortable speaking about. I mean, it's a it's a little bit problematic in the sense that my dad um, he he was an an alcoholic, so he was not he was not well. So when I was little, he was either working or sleep. So I didn't really know my father a lot until I was about 12, 13, 14, when I lived in boarding school and I went home. I sort of I was the one that sort of got him out of his his little world and we did stuff together. So I only really got to know my father a year or two before my parents then split up and then he he, he died. But it was the the it's it's a little bit difficult to 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 say because it's not like probably with I don't know if you've still been if you were still at home when when your father passed I was, but yeah. I I obviously I've been in in I've not been living at home for a while hmm. by the time he died so it wasn't like an impact in the sense that it changed the situation 
it was the problem was later I, from what I would gather and how I think my daughter experiences me as a father is you need your dad later because you have questions that you need answers to and you want guidance and I think that was the main problem that I had with him not being there is that I'd never actually had anybody to talk to and I was lucky in the sense that my granddad, his father, my dad's uh, father, we got on really, really well. So when I was then 18, 19, and uh, I'd, I, I had as a sort of dad substitute mm. through my granddad, in which case it actually helped me a lot because mm. we've, uh, he, I got what I needed from a, a father figure, let's mm. call it down. Um, yeah, I think that the main impact, I think, was that it took me a while to sort of find somebody that you can sort of talk to about things that doesn't, obviously it's different when, you know, you can obviously you talk to your spouse, to your wife, and but it, it's different to have somebody to, somebody to talk to that's older and somebody that's maybe experienced different things and has also maybe a different perspective. Because as much as obviously you know times have uh, changed, but there's still difference the difference between a man and a woman, and I think you need both. You need mm. uh, uh, like a mother figure for different things than you need a father figure, regardless of who it is and what it is. But you have different sort of ideas between uh, between um, people that you can talk to, and that was something that I sort of didn't have and I didn't realize it at the time that that was what was missing and I think I was quite a difficult teenager because I didn't have this person that was sort of that you can that that sort of reflects what you do and sort of gives you a feedback that's not from peers or from somebody in authority it's it's sort of a different uh, a different um, person and I think that was the main thing um, and therefore, I never really dealt with it in the sense that you would normally assume with my uh, losing my father, because obviously I, I wasn't there when it really happened. And uh, it was always a little bit, um, it was also obviously because uh, my parents had quite a, a, a nasty divorce. It wasn't a very uh, amicable uh, thing. So there was a lot of core drama and, and, and things that um that that happens which then also made it that you couldn't really there was no quiet you couldn't really deal with it in a sense that you would hope to deal with something like that so it took me a while and i did it probably all through my 20s uh, to sort of uh get to grips with the fact that you actually lost somebody that was not was always there but we like i said we didn't really have much of a relationship until i was about 12 13 um so it was a yeah not like a normal type family if you were to write a book you know what would you write it about <laughs> i i still think that most people need more pushing than less like the the stuff that i had maybe too much most people don't have enough which is something to work for and to, to and mm. and so i think if i were to write a book 
and, and that's what I always find when I talk with uh, people and when I get to know people, they're always quite interested in how what happened in my life because it's something that most people don't experience. Most people don't move out at nine and you know have different careers and do the things maybe that I've done. And I think that it would probably help people to realize how good they have it and that they should use their time more. And I think that would be the, the benefit that my life could maybe give others is to, to realize that, you know, stuff might not be the way you want it to be, but get on with it and do something about it. Don't sit back and feel sorry for yourself. It's fine to reflect and it's all good, but most people could use a push. And I think I can provide yes. that. Yeah, for sure. I'm very conscious of time, Milan, and I have a couple of quick questions to finish this out, if that's yeah. okay. Um, but stop me if you need to jump off. All the good, all good. Um, all right, good, good. Uh, so we know that we, we've had first career, first life, second life. If, let's say, you're financially independent ne next year, financially yeah. independent, all that's taken care of, and you cannot work in the commercial world anymore, mm -hmm. what would you do with your time? What would your third life be? <laughs> I I always think it's it's funny because um, I had this discussion a couple of, like a year or two ago we had with my team we went uh, we had like a, a Christmas party and obviously you know, people had drinks and all this and the, the situation came up where you said uh, what would you do if you won the lottery if 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 you didn't need to do anything what would you do mm -hmm. and I always find it fascinating that there's people that say I would change everything. I would kick my boyfriend out and I would move out and I hate... <laughs> like, Who and says I think, that? You sh <laughs> I, I, it was really, there was, there was a girl there that really said, she, basically she hated everything. She had her job, her family. The, and I thought, that's really sad. If, if you hate your life that much right now, then why don't you change it? And that's... It, it, I wouldn't really, I mean, obviously, if I weren't allowed to work anymore in, in, in my job, then I really have to think about it, what I would uh, do. But to me, I would not stop. I love what I do. Mm. I love, even if I wouldn't get paid for it, I like developing uh, people and uh, creating opportunities. And I, I, I thoroughly believe that the in the in the job I'm in now, I know it's a commercial sort of enterprise, but the company I work for is um, there. It's it's called the Mieterverein, uh, the the Deutsche Mieterbund, which is the Renters Association, essentially. And so your we, our our company is an insurance company that is standing or supposed to help the little people, the people that are that that it's a sort of David against Goliath, where you're trying to fight mm. somebody that's stronger than you. And I, I really believe that that's what it takes and that's what we need, because obviously the gap between the rich and the poor and the, the, the financially uh, strong uh, or the, the, the influential. And I think this sort of you need somebody to stand up for the little people. And that's why I work where I work, because I, I, I think that's something that benefits the people that need help. And so in this, essentially, if I, if I couldn't make money with it anymore I, and I didn't need money, I would still try and do, try and find something which is exactly in the same field as I am. 
because I chose it for a reason. That's what I meant when I said that I don't want to live life later. I want to do it mm. now. And obviously I'm trying to, you know, I still need to have income and, you know, I'm not there that I can say, all right, okay, I don't need to, to, to work. Mm. But even if I didn't, I would. Because just because it, I don't need the income wouldn't need to f change the fact that it's important, I think, in life to have a purpose. And um, yeah, I, I, I like what I've done and where, where I am right now. And I've, gone, I'm, I've come here for a reason and that's mm. not really changed. And it took a while and I needed steps and I needed to learn things and I needed to develop. But right now, I would just find anything that would sort of help that purpose. And powerful. Not everybody can say that. That really is powerful. Uh, three final quick questions to finish mm -hmm. this out. Desert Island. You're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know if you'll ever be rescued. What one thing? It cannot be a person. What one thing would you take with you? <laughs> What comes to mind first, obviously, um, I don't know if you've uh, spoken about it. I love Audible. I've been an Audible addict uh, since I was, uh, since it uh, came out. Mm. I've got um, thousands of uh, of uh, Audible books and podcasts. And if I had to choose right now, off the top of my head, I would take my, not necessarily my phone, but uh, my my audio books with me. Yeah. And I love because I, 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 it's something that I've learned to do. I sometimes nowadays when I need a break, I take my book and I go for a walk. I live sort of uh, in the outskirts so I can just walk through the forest and through the field and get inspiration, listen to podcasts like yours, like uh, other inspiring people. And it, that's something that I think is really, really important. Do you have a favorite book or one that's inspired you the most? I, can't, I I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't put I wouldn't be able to pick one because okay. like I said I've listened I, I, I listened to that many books and that many stories and I think there isn't one book that can shape your life completely there's people that I I, I, I find inspiring like Simon Sinek and there's there's people that I think are have good ideas but to me, there is not one book or one person that has found the philosopher's stone. So, so, okay. the, 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 so you need difference. You need different people in order to to be rounded, and that's Perfect. why I couldn't choose. I couldn't choose one. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Actually, if you've only ever read five, ten books, then it's a lot easier to choose your favorite. But when you've had so many, it's it's it's, it's, a, yeah. different, it's a different task. Um, Two, two final questions. Uh, your house is burning down, or your apartment, wherever you live, it's burning down, and you, your family are safe, and if you have any pets, they're safe, and your phone, of course, and your computer are safe. <laughs> and you have time to run in and grab one thing and rescue one thing. What, what would come to mind first? Nothing. I don't really need anything. I, if I if I've got my it. family, if mm. I've it, every, nothing matter, it doesn't matter. Mm. There's not there's nothing that's more valuable than I, I always. That's the same thing 
what I always found fascinating, I've, I've met somebody a couple of years ago and it was just, we had the same discussion where we said, what would happen if you were, if you lost everything? Mm-hmm. And I was, we, we, we talked about it and I, I, I said exactly the same thing. I think I would end up exactly where I am right now again. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing that I say I need to have in order to be happy. It's just everything will come by itself. Yeah. No, I get that. Sometimes people have something of sentimental value. Like I have that camera behind me. My mm-hmm. father got in France after the First World War. Uh, he was, oh, he was, he's, I'm, we're in Ireland. I don't know you mentioned mm-hmm. England, but uh, he was in the Red Cross and he stayed on. He was a gardener. In, and to him, that was his kind of lifeline to his family back mm-hmm. home. And uh, he gave it to my mother and she gave it to me before she yeah. died. So, yeah, I, I would. But again, would it impact my life if I lost it? No, but I would. Uh, if I had time, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a little bit different in the sense that I said that obviously when my parents uh, got divorced and um, I don't really have anything from when I was yeah. little because the house got it got sold with everything in it. I never I don't have anything from my childhood yeah. anyway. Um, so anything that I have is relatively new, let's say so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, actually, this just popped into my head for a weird reason. Um, Oppenheimer or Mission Impossible 7 or whatever the current one is. <laughs> or I'll throw in Barbie as well while I'm at it. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest... But you can only I mean, watch one of them. I can, I can only, watch, uh, only watch one of them. To be honest, I would, I would watch Barbie. And actually, I did. We had that discussion. We went there with, we went all together with my wife and my daughter. We had this, uh, we, we thought, what are we going to watch? We went to the cinema a couple of days ago and we were thinking of Oppenheimer. We were thinking of Mission Impossible. And we chose uh, Barbie. And it was fun in a sense. I don't know if you've seen it. It's not gotcha. really what you would, it, it's not really what you would expect. And I mm-hmm. thought it was nice because it was, a movie, obviously it was funny and there was things in it from, you know, childhood from, from people, but it was also about just sort of finding out what you want in life. Mm. That's sort of what the, what the movie is about. Mission Impossible, I saw the first one, it gets bored relatively quickly. I'm, uh, yeah, it's not right. really, I don't really have to see it. Uh, Oppenheimer, I'd rather, I'd rather read the book than to watch the movie. Anything that's sort of impactful, I always find the book is better than the movie anyway. Mm. Um, so, therefore, okay. just through elimination, I would yeah, choose that's... Barbie. Okay. And then final question. Mm-hmm. When there's, or if, or when there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Um... I don't know if it's, it might be, it might sound a bit uh, far-fetched maybe, or it sounds uh, silly, but I would like it to be called, I did it my way, hmm. to quote Frank Sinatra. That's funny you should say that. I have said to my wife that should I die before her, that's what I want at my funeral. Interesting. Hmm. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. You're an incredible person. Thank you, for Thank you Paul. Me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having a conversation like that. It's been a while. 
uh, to talk about my life that much. And uh, yeah, I'm really grateful. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the next podcast. Thank you.